We are in a series for the month of January talking about spiritual disciplines. And this morning we're going to talk about solitude and we're going to use three different passages in reference to that. So 1 Kings chapter 19, Matthew 4 and Mark 1. We're going to read together the 1 Kings passage, but you need to have a a way to mark the Matthew and Mark passage. 1 Kings 19, that's page 301 or 302 if you're using the the blue Bible uh, in front. Now, I realize when you talk about something like solitude, if I were a mom of two kids under five, I might hear it a little differently than if I was a 54-year-old man who had no children in my home. Praise the Lord. Um, <clears throat> Sorry, Morgan. Um, But so what I don't want is all the moms to line up in the meet and greet and say, here's my kid. I'm going to have a week of solitude. That probably wouldn't be good for Pastor Paul. But these disciplines that we're talking about, you know, they have seasons. And some you can exercise a little bit more readily than others. But I think this is something, even if your solitude time is small, and it's incorporated in your prayer. It's something that you need to have at any time, and maybe especially when you feel most tired and needy. So let's stand together and read this story from 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning with verse 9. There he, or Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek after my life to take it away. And he said, God said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael, to be king over Israel, over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Japhath, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha will put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
Let's take a moment to sit down and reflect on this story before we read it together and think about how God might speak to us. When I was in college, I went camping with some friends, and uh, I was never really a good Boy Scout, so I wasn't prepared. It was November, went to Furman University, which is in Greenville, South Carolina, so we ventured up into the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, and, you know, I didn't think a tent was really necessary for one night. I mean, why do you need a tent? I had a nice tarp. I felt like that certainly was sufficient. I didn't have a a sleeping bag, really, so I had to borrow one. And the person that gave me theirs, it was a summer sleeping bag. So it was pretty much the thickness of a paper towel, something like that. (laughs) That night, the winds kicked up and the temperatures decided to drop below freezing. And I was told by some Boy Scout, some evil Boy Scout, I think, who came prepared that, Paul, if you put a big stone, there were a lot of stones around this fireplace that were sort of loose stones. If you take one of these stones that's been by the fireplace and put it in your paper towel, I mean your sleeping bag, (laughs) then, you know, it'll warm the whole thing up. So I took the tarp and I put it across a, a limb and basically created a big wind tunnel for the wind to funnel through all night. I put a hot stone in my paper towel And that really worked for about 10 minutes. I mean, for 10 minutes, I was pretty comfortable. But then what did the stone do? It assumed room temperature, which was below freezing. So around 3 a.m., I'm underneath a tarp that's in a wind tunnel now. I am covered by a paper towel, and I'm huddling next to an ice cube. (laughs) And I was frozen. I mean, I have never been that cold before and I don't know why I didn't decide to do something before that point but I was like I can't stay here hugging this ice cube I'm done and so I got in this guy's truck who didn't have much gas left but enough to get the heat on and so I cranked up his truck truck and I got in it and it took me like you know 45 minutes at full heat to just get you know have you ever been so cold you're hot you're still hot you're hot on the outside but you still know you're cold on the inside And so you just keep pouring that heat on. And it took a long time and created a great deal of laughter by my Boy Scout friends uh, to get my body back to normal. To to sit in in front of this fire, in front of this heat that could melt the ice that had taken over my veins and turn me back into a human being. That's what God does with the spiritual disciplines. He takes your cold, frozen soul, and you put, you put, he puts himself in front of you through reading or prayer or here in solitude, and he begins to warm up your soul. So you're not frozen. You're, you're attentive to him. You're responsive to him. You're, you're, Your spiritual blood can flow through your life and you can make better decisions. You can know what he wants. You can move in those kinds of directions. And so this morning, we've been, we've been looking at these spiritual disciplines and we're going to look at this one unusual discipline called solitude. 
And uh, I thought about what Dallas Willard said. He said, this is the most radical of all the disciplines for the spiritual life. The most radical of all the spiritual disciplines. Now, think about how radical that is today. Solitude. Silence. It might have been radical 50 years ago. But today, with the cell phone, with technology... We're so wired. You, you go to sleep looking at your cell phone, listening to a playlist or checking your Instagram or, re, or checking your Facebook or your email, and then finally you fall asleep, and the first thing you do when you wake up, it's on, and it's ready to tell you what you've missed over the last six or eight or ten hours. Whether that's uh, you're a college student and you can't, you're, you have the fear of missing out, FOMO, or you're a business person and, and just the world's gone by when you've been asleep and you've got to immediately catch up. You're never slowing down. There was a big billboard out on College Road advertising a cell phone company and the tagline was, silence is stupid. So that's the culture everyone here lives in. And so trying to resist it, trying to resist the noise is really going to be a radical thing. And so I want to um, just imagine for a moment, imagine that um, there was someone here that was immersed in their work, immersed in their work, plus they volunteered. Maybe they're also working on some education. Maybe they're a parent, so they have a couple of children. But whatever it is, they're, they're completely consumed by the pressures and the pace of the culture. And if you encountered this person about solitude, they might say something like this. I I don't have time to slow down. I mean, it's just simply unrealistic for me. You you don't understand how much I have to get done. If If I stop, the first thing that comes to my mind is I'm wasting my time. I could be getting something done. Now, if that person was me... Who would you tell me is the most important person in my life? Me. The person who would say those kinds of things is completely self-absorbed. And, of course, I would say, well, no way. All I do is give my time away to my family, my church, my friends. And you would say wisely, I hope, Paul, you've fallen into a terrible trap. You you believe that the people or the events that are happening around you, they're incapable of moving forward unless you're involved. And so you're addicted to yourself, Paul. And as as a friend, we're recommending to you solitary confinement. That's what a wise person would tell me if that was the case. Solitary confinement. Prisons know that solitary confinement works. What does it do? It works to break the will of the prisoner. The prisoner wants to go this way. They don't want him to go that way because it's illegal. So we're trying to break the will of the prisoner. And God uses solitude to break our addiction to ourselves. Instead of praying, thy will be done, we spend our whole life praying, my will be done. We go to God and we don't first say, God, look, you're completely in control of all things. Your will be done. That's what it is. Instead, I don't, of course, I don't say to God, my will be done. But my prayer life is just a list of things that I would like to see get done. 
And what I think what God's here is he hears is the first part of your prayer, Paul, is Paul's will be done, Paul's kingdom come. And so we all have this difficulty, and God uses solitude to to break us out of an addiction to ourselves. One writer said this, in solitude, you come to terms with your basic powerlessness and your fundamental inability to solve yours or other people's problems or to change the world. In solitude, you come, you come into reality, which that you're, you're, you have an inability to solve your problems, other people's problems, and the world's problems. So we're going to turn to the scriptures this morning, one passage in the Old Testament, one passage in the New Testament, looking at Elijah, looking at Jesus, and just see how solitude operated in these two worlds and what we might be able to pick up from it. So we're going to start here in 1 Kings 19. It's helpful to know just a little bit of a background. Uh, Saul, David, and Solomon, they were the kings of Israel, the United Kingdom of Israel. And after Solomon, the, the two, the, that one kingdom split into two. The northern part was called Israel, and the southern part was called Judah. And God sends prophets to each one of those groups, the northern part Israel or the southern part Judah, to call the kings and call the people back. The people get addicted to themselves. They get addicted to the culture. And a prophet, a voice from the Lord has to come in and say, don't go that way. That's not the right way to live. Come and follow after me. And one of those prophets to the northern kingdom is Elijah. And Elijah is this special mouthpiece for God, constantly, constantly calling people back to the true God. And you see here in uh, chapter 18, if you just go back, uh, you see that um, he's got kind of a shut, there's a showdown happening in chapter 18, which helps you understand chapter 19. Some of you might be remember, uh, remember the story. That there's a, really a showdown between Elisha the prophet and Ahab the evil king of Israel. And they decide, hey, let's go up to this mountain and we'll both build an altar and we'll call down for God to come down in fire. And whichever one comes down and consumes the, the sacrifice, then that's the true God. So we have this showdown, and it's Elijah, Elijah standing against all these prophets. And you get a sense of how frozen the soul is of the people who are standing around watching this showdown. Chapter 18, verse 21, Elisha, he come, Elijah comes near to all the people and says, How long will you go on limping or wavering between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And what does it say? And the people didn't answer him. They were frozen. These people were completely frozen in their soul. And Elijah is seeing this, and he's trying to help them understand who God is. And God wins the showdown, which you can read later uh, on your own in verse in chapter 18. But the, winning the showdown caused th- death threats to come against Elijah. Because even though he won the showdown, there are a lot of people who are invested in the culture. And so he gets death threats, and he becomes discouraged, he becomes afraid, he's been emotionally spent in this event, and he decides, i got to get out of town, and he actually runs 300 miles. 
He runs or walks 300 miles, and he finds himself in chapter 19 in solitary confinement. He's in a cave. And in this cave, God begins to reshape his soul. And that's what we want to look at here. He comes here, and he's, he, gets a real, he, get, he gets a view of reality. Because of, the, that because of the intensity of his service, his view of reality had become warped. So let me say that again, especially if you're somebody here in ministry or even in a very intense situation. When you get into an intense situation, your view of reality can easily become warped. And Elijah, he has done so many great things to, to be applauded for sure. But he'd gotten in this intense situation, and you're gonna, we're going to see how his view of reality had become warped. And, and, it, and God wants to smooth that out in this solitude, and it's a very humbling experience. First thing we learn here from Elijah that God wants Elijah to learn in solitude is that God has a plan. And he's in control of that plan. I think that's why you have all these strange manifestations of the wind and the earthquake and the fire. In other words, my circumstances look like chaos, but God's not in that. And then finally he comes in this whisper. And he says, Elijah, I'm I'm in complete control, even if it looks chaotic to you. And that may be the one thing some of you need to hear this morning. Yeah, my, my outward circumstances, they look like an earthquake. They look like a fire has broken out. It looks like chaos in my life. And God would want you to hear he's in control at that moment. He's in control of all the chaotic situations that are around Elijah. Even though he's intensely involved and he's, he's actually had some winning battles, he's gotten discouraged. Now he's got these death threats and, and God's trying to say to his prophet, even if you die, I'm in complete control. Second thing Elijah learns in this solitude is God has his own people. Verse 18. Remember, you hear what he's, he's, he's been saying? He says it twice. Even I, I, I'm the only one left. When you get into an intense situation like that, you feel like you're the only one hanging on. You might feel that way in your marriage. You might feel that way in your business. You might feel that way in the community or the world, the church, the culture. And he's lost a view of reality. And, and God says, Elijah, I've got 7,000 people you don't even know about. So he's, he's readjusting Elisha's view of reality, but Elisha couldn't have heard it until he gets into the solitude. And third, and this is maybe the hardest thing for Elijah to hear, verse 16. Hey, Elijah, I've got your replacement ready. I just want you to appreciate the distance Elijah has to travel here. I came saying, I'm the only one left, and I'm leaving saying, I'm getting replaced. See, what had happened in the intensity of Elijah's world, he thought he was critical. He couldn't be replaced, he was at the center. 
And God's trying to help that person who's a real control freak say, you know what? You're going to get replaced one day. And it's not going to be a problem for me. I'm not going to miss your effort. Because I'm taking care of everything. And where do you learn that? You learn that in solitude. You get that adjustment in solitude. You don't get it by being on your cell phone all the time and having noise in your life all the time. You get it in solitude and say, I could be doing something, but I'm trusting God that he's completely in control of all things. And so Elijah picks up this great knowledge from his time in a cave. And so when we, when we neglect solitude, we when we neglect the practice of removing ourselves from the pace and the pressure of the world, we, we become easy prey into thinking that everything, everything revolves around us. So God uses this solitude to change, change Elisha's perspective. Jesus in solitude. Let's look at these two passages, Matthew 4 and Mark chapter 1. This passage from Matthew 4, very familiar. This is uh, before, really before he uh, begins his, the main part of his ministry. And you see here in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, in the end of chapter 3, Jesus has been baptized. 4, 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, into solitary confinement, you might say. Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, then turn these stones to become loaves of bread. And then you see this, these three temptations that Satan unravels. So I want us just to notice a couple of things here. First of all, Uh, Just prior to Jesus' launching his public ministry, he spends 40 years, I mean 40 days in the desert. To get him ready for this three-year process. Most scholars think after Paul had his Damascus Road experience, before he actually started preaching, it was three years. Everyone agrees for Moses, it took 40 years in the desert. So I prefer 40 days, but I might be a 40-year kind of person. Like, Paul, you got a lot to work out, buddy. And it's going to take a lot, lot of solitude before you can really engage in a healthy way. Remember Moses, what he tried to do? He tried to take situation in his own hands. He killed the servant. He killed the soldier and tried to bury him in the sand. God's like, hey, we can't have a temper tantrum Everything in, when everything isn't going your way. Hey, you're out to the desert for 40 years. And then you can come back and then you can rightfully engage knowing that I'm in complete control. And so here Jesus is. He's, he's, the Spirit himself has launched him out into the solitary confinement. And, and this is what's really key and maybe something different for you to think about the Spirit wasn't putting Jesus in the desert to make him the weakest he possibly could and didn't get tempted by hunger. He's putting Jesus in solitary confinement to make Jesus as strong as he possibly could. 
So then when he gets tempted, he can easily say no. Why? He's been saying no for 40 days. I've been weaning myself from the world. So no matter what comes at me, now I'm in a position to say, I don't need that. And so when you're in solitude, you're building a muscle that can only be built in that particular place. And notice these three desires Jesus has to fight against. The physical desires. You know, God might not meet your physical desires, so you better do something about them yourself. Or the desire for popularity. Throw yourself down from the temple and do something spectacular so everybody can see who you are. And then power and control. I can give you the kingdoms of this world. Physical desires, desires for popularity, desires for control or power. Anybody familiar with those temptations? Yeah. How do you fight against those? Solitude. I don't, I beat my body and make it my slave. I don't have to answer every time my body cries out for a need. I can disengage from Instagram and Facebook and my cell phone, and the world can go by, and it's okay. I don't have to have my face on the screen all the time. Painfully, I read where you can get somebody to keep your Facebook up even after you die. That's somebody who's addicted to themselves, in case you don't know. Or power or control. I'd like to be in control of everything. In solitude, you build a muscle that begins to help you say, no, I don't, need, I don't need that. I can unplug from that. I don't want that temptation now. Mark chapter 1, verse 32. It's one of my favorite little passages in, in, from the book of Mark. As you turn there, I'm thinking, if Jesus needed solitude... How much more do I need solitude? So Jesus has started his ministry. He's healed some people. Those people have gone back to to sort of back into the town and said, you should see this guy. He's healing people. So the next day, the people that were there the first day come back. And guess what? All of their friends and family have come back. They're trying to find out who this this, uh, miracle worker is. And so you see here in chapter 1, verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by a demon. And the whole city gathered together at the door and healed many who were sick and various diseases, cast out demons. Then they went away, verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. So resisting the snooze button. Jesus gets up, departs, goes to a solitary confinement where he prays. Simon and the other disciples, they began to search for him. And they found him and said, hey, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus said to him, hey, let's go to the next town. Let's not go back into the town where everybody's looking for for me. So I can preach there, for that's why I came. And then they went to another town. I just find this little passage fascinating. First thing, Jesus has all this pressure. And he says, 
I know I'm going to face it the next day, and before I face it, I've got to have some solitude. Contrast the disciples. Disciples oversleep the alarm. When they wake up, the whole town's already at their door. Hey, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? The disciples wake up already being behind. You ever done that? I I woke up at 6 a.m. and I already feel like I'm behind. I'm already feeling that churn in my soul. I've got to get moving. I've got to get moving. I've got to get moving. And so they quickly make an assessment of the situation saying, well, look, everybody's here at this town. I'm sure Jesus wants everybody to know who he is. So Jesus must want to come back here. How could you possibly miss this? So I love Simon going, being the, the mouthpiece for the disciples, saying, Jesus, let's roll, buddy. It's time to get back in the game. This is exactly what we're hoping for. All this popularity coming to you, isn't that what we want? And Jesus must have stunned them by saying, yeah, that's not what I'm looking for today. What? You want to go to another town? You've got all these people hungering for you right here? Yeah, God doesn't want me to do that today. And I wonder, for myself and for you, how many times if you had had some space in the morning, you would have made a different decision in the afternoon? And you look back and say, why did I say that? Why did I choose to go that way? I just, because I didn't have that solitude. And Jesus many times is going in the very opposite direction, but you're going so fast, you can't hear it. You can't hear a whisper because you've got noise in your life all the time. Things are falling apart or things are happening. And Jesus finds that solitude and he says, okay, it look, I, guys, I know it looks like the right thing to do, but trust me, it's not the right thing to do. So plenty of you here, with as many that are here this morning, you're on the edge of some kind of decision. And it's fine to ask friends, but I'm pleading with you, just find some space for solitude. Not with Christian music on, just you sitting and saying, God, I'm just trying to hear this whisper voice. I don't know which way to go. I think this is the right way, but I know you a lot of times it's not the right way. So I'm just open to how that would happen. And then all of us are facing times where we get up and and God might say, I want to use you today in somebody's life who's going to intersect you, but you don't know it right now. But I need your heart to be sensitive to my working so that when that person comes along, you don't go, oh, hey, and then leave. I just need you to be sensitive. Can you be, can you hear my voice right now? So when we get out there and it's two o'clock in the afternoon and you're feeling a little pressed for time and I bring that person, can you stop and say, yeah, this is a divine appointment. So many great things happen in solitude which is one reason I think the enemy has just ramped up the noise in our world. Some of us have a frozen soul. And it's not magic. It's just sitting before the Lord and saying, you know what? 
you're in complete control and I've been in complete control and I'm just going to trust you with my whole life. And I'm going to start building the habit in of being quiet and listening to your word. If you don't have the habit, many of us don't, my, my encouragement is just to start telling someone, hey, I need this habit. Because if you say, yeah, 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 I need to do that, that's all you do, chances are you're not going to do anything. But if you have a friend say, hey, I just need a, some space in my week that I just sit quietly before you. Will you help? Will you encourage me? A lot, lot more likely that's going to happen. One of the spiritual habits we have as a church is prayer. And so many years ago, uh, I just said, hey, I'm trying to find a way for people to pray. And I thought this would be a good idea to have a card. And we'll just pray over the cards. We won't read what's in the card. And um, then we'll send it back to people at the end of the year. And two or three years in, I sat around with the elders and staff and said, you know what, I think that's kind of like a neat idea, but let's, let's, let's get rid of it. They were like, what? I was like, I mean, it was nice, but, you know, they're like, no, you've got to keep this. And so many people, even today, somebody said, hey, this is my, one of my favorite services at Christ Community Church. Just, I, I know I'm writing some stuff down. I know you're going to pray over it for 365 days. And these are the things that I really want God to move in some way in my life. So that's what we're doing here. Just asking you to say, hey, Lord, these are the things... Might be one verse, might be a name, might be a list of things, whatever that is. And we're just going to pray over them today, next week, for 11 months. And then December of 2018, you'll get this back in the car and just see how God has moved. Some yeses, some noes, and some in ways that you couldn't even uh, imagine at this point. So the way this is going to work is there will be elders up here. It's a little complicated, all right? So don't get too nervous. Uh, but you, what we want you to come up is already have your name on the front of the card, your, your address. Go ahead and lick it and seal it, all right? And then when you come up, put it on the, don't hold it, put it on the surface. And you or somebody will drip this on here. You'll punch this down, and it'll be sealed, and you'll put it in this jar. So that, somebody will be helping you through that process. But it's really a process to just enjoy. It's not like a solemn thing. So if you're sitting waiting, you can talk to your neighbor. That's fine. And just we're appreciative that here we are, family of God. We're going to pray for these things together. And I hope that you, as you just watch people come up and come back down the, the aisle, you'll just think, I, I want to say a quick prayer for them and their family and whatever was on their card that we can uh, pray together. All right, let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, we're, we're trying to do something that lifts up prayer and brings these needs to your feet. And so all these these things, people, events, circumstances, verses, words that people put on a card, we're right now just praying uh, for your clear and definite answer to these things. And they may be exactly what they want, but we know from just this scripture today, we might be going in one direction thinking this is this would be great, but it's not that way. And at the end of the year, we would say, well, we trust God that 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 didn't happen for whatever reason. But his way isn't my way on that. Bless these prayers, small as they are. May they come to your ears, the sovereign God, and be answered in your time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.